0: If, for some reason, I was asking one of you to retrieve something from my car in the parking lot, and you didn't know what kind of car i I had, I would have to identify my car for you, and I would do that by telling you that it's a white two thousand six Toyota Highlander it has gray leather seats, so on the driver's side there's a a little tear in the seat. So you went out there and you're looking for that vehicle and you see several 2006 white Toyota Highlanders in the parking lot. So you have to examine a little more closely and as you do you find that that there is one with uh, leather seats, but those leather seats on the driver's side, that one doesn't have a tear in the driver's side. So you have to look beyond that. And so then you find one that has all the leather seats the same way, and there is a tear in the driver's side seat. But I've given you the license number of my vehicle, and even with all of those identical markings, you look at the license number, and it's not the license number I gave you. So you have to keep looking. Until what? until finally you find a 2006 white Toyota Highlander with gray leather seats, one of which on the driver's side has a tear and the license number is the license number I gave you and then you know that you have identified the proper vehicle. There were similarities with all the others, but they were not identical. You were seeking to identify my car. Identity. We deal with identity every day, don't we? We all have an identity, a very individualistic identity. One of the definitions in Merriam-Webster's dictionary uh, for identity is the condition of being the same with something described or asserted. Listen to that again, the condition of being the same with something described or asserted. In other words, I've described, in the case of my vehicle, I've described that vehicle in great detail. You're looking for something that is the same exactly as what I've described. And when you find it, you know you found the vehicle. The Bible speaks of a divine institution. It is called the church. It was typified by the tabernacle, the temple typified by the priest who served under, under the law of Moses as they typified the saints in Christ Jesus, the Christians. The prophets spoke of this church. One of the great prophecies is found in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and I'm sure you're familiar. It shall come to pass in the latter days, or the last days, that the mountain of the Lord's house... "...shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." Daniel 2, 44, "...in the days of these kings," referring to the Roman kings, "...the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom." that will never be destroyed. And that kingdom is the church. The church and the kingdom are one and the same. That's clearly established in Scripture. And then John, the baptizer, preceded the church. Matthew 3 and verse 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, the church, in other words, is at hand. And Jesus promised it in Matthew sixteen eighteen. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, and I'll give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. There we see kingdom of heaven and church, as we've often talked about, used interchangeably. I'll build my church, give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven and the church. They are one and the same. And so Isaiah's prophecy concerns the church. Daniel's prophecy concerns the church. Jesus promised to build it. The book of Acts tells us of its establishment and its growth. The epistles are written to edify or to build up the church. The book of Revelation tells us of the glory of the church. Now time has formed a great chasm between about 33 A.D. when the church was established and 2012. That's a pretty wide chasm, isn't it? From 33 A.D. to 2012, that's a chasm. Then we must ask, is it possible in 2012 As we near the end of this year, is it possible in 2012 to find the church of the New Testament? If it can be identified, it'll be by the same process I described as to identifying my car in the parking lot. It would have to be by noting its characteristics and seeking out a group that possesses two or three of those characteristics. No, that possesses all of them that possesses all of the characteristics. So think with me for a few minutes about the characteristics of the New Testament church. What about its foundation? It was built on the rock, the rock that Peter confessed, that great truth in Matthew 16 where Jesus said, "You." R. Peter, after Peter had said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. As Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they gave various answers. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commended him and said, it's upon this rock, it's upon this great truth that you've just confessed, Peter, that I will build my church. The rock, the foundation, is Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, no one can lay any other foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That is the foundation. It cannot be John Calvin. It cannot be John Wesley. It cannot be Martin Luther. It cannot be any man. Those are not proper foundations. The, ner- the church of the New Testament has Christ as its foundation. That is an identifying characteristic. Christ is the foundation, but also the builder. I must find the church that has the right builder. Back to Matthew 16, 18. Upon this rock I will build my church. I will build it. I, Christ is the builder. The church of the New Testament must have Christ as its builder. It's built by his authority. In Matthew 28, 18, he came to his apostles, said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he commissioned them to go and to preach the gospel To every nation. Christ is the foundation. Christ is the builder. Any other is not acceptable. What about the time and place of building? The time and place have to be right. Remember Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 2.2? In the latter days or in the last days, that's when it is to be built. Well, what did Peter say as a part of that sermon that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. At verse 16, as he quoted another prophet, Joel, and said, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days. He's talking about the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy about the coming of the kingdom in the last days. Isaiah said it would be in the last days. Peter identifies the last days as Pentecost Day, when the church, the kingdom, came into existence. If we look at what the Hebrews writer wrote in Hebrews Chapter 1, we see that in various times, and various ways, God spoke in time fast to the fathers by the prophets, but has in these last days, he says, spoken to us by his Son. In these last days, the Christian dispensation, the time and place of the building of the church have to be right. If you're part of a kingdom or a church that was built sooner, it's too soon. If you're part of a church that was built later, it's too late. And what about the place in Jerusalem? For out of Zion shall go forth the law, remember? And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem anywhere else is the wrong place. And what about the singularity of the church? Oh, this is an important point and one that is tragically ignored and vehemently disputed today in the religious world. But a characteristic of the New Testament church is its singularity. Again, Matthew 16:18, Jesus said, "Upon this rock I will build my church," singular, my church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, he God put all things under his Christ's feet and gave him Christ to be head over all things to the church which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Now notice it. He gave him to be head over all things to the church, singular, which is his body. Singular? If we had any doubt, look at Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church. The church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Again, the body, the church. Gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The body, the church. The church, the body. How many? Listen to Ephesians 4 and verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord. How many lords do you want to serve? The Lord of your choice? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. How many gods do you claim to serve? How many gods do those in the religious world today claim to serve? But how many bodies does that same text tell us we have one body? There is one body, and there is no doubt about the identification of that one body being the church. He is the head of the body, the church. The church is the body. A characteristic of the New Testament church is its singularity. I will build my church. It is not a denominational body. It is a pre-denominational body. It predates denominationalism because it has as its identifying characteristic one of them its singularity as we go back to the New Testament to find that identity. What about the words that are used to designate the church? It is never called by the name of any man. It is never called in Scripture by the name of any particular practice religiously. The words indicate possession when we talk about the church of Christ. The churches of Christ salute you. The churches that comprise the body of Christ. These various congregations. The church of God, which is at Corinth. These are designations that show possession. The church of Christ, over which Christ is head. The church of God. The architect who orchestrated and brought into existence through the giving of his only begotten son. The church of that we're seeking to identify from the New Testament. What about the words used to designate the members of the body? Some that the Bible uses are disciples, saints, believers, brethren, Christians. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. But what about disciples or saints or believers or brethren or Christians? do Do we add any designation for the disciples of Christ that involve a man's name? Where? In fact, not only do we not find such a designation, but we find a condemnation of that kind of designation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and said, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. What was the problem, Paul? He goes on, for it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. What kind of contentions, Paul? Now I say this, here they are. That each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, that is Peter, or I am of Christ. And then he asked, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see, not only in Scripture do we not find God's people designated by a human name, we find a condemnation of human allegiances that were being given to certain preachers by the church at Corinth, and Paul condemned it and asked rhetorical questions in the process. Is Christ divided? Which is to say, he is not Was Paul crucified for you, which is to say he was not? Were you baptized in the name of Paul, which is to say you were not? Therefore don't wear my name or the name of any man. But what about the source of authority? Did the church of the New Testament know any man-made creed at all? Were there any prayer books? Were there any creeds? Were there any disciplines, written disciplines, that governed the church of the New Testament? No, the Word of God. That was the only authority. For a while it was in human beings as they were inspired to teach and to preach it, and then they wrote it down until ultimately we have it in its final and complete written form. The Word of God is the only authority. It furnishes us completely unto every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1 and verse 3. The word of God is the source of our faith, Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We are born again by that word, 1 Peter 1 and verse 23. We dare not change or alter it, Galatians 1, 6 through 9. We dare not transgress or go beyond it, Second John 9-11. through That passage condemns those who go beyond what is written. This is the only source of authority that the church of the New Testament has. What about the day of worship? It is the first day of the week. Acts 20 and verse 7. The disciples came together upon the first day of the week to break bread, that is to partake of the Lord's Supper and to worship God. It is also called the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1. As John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's the first day of the week, referring to the Lord's Day. And it corresponds to this very day. That's why we're here this morning. It corresponds to our day, Sunday. And what about the manner of worship? As we continue to identify every characteristic of the New Testament church, how did they worship? They worshiped regularly, regularly. They worshipped in certain ways, that is, by certain acts. They partook of the Lord's Supper upon the first day of every week, as Acts 20 and verse 7 again clearly shows. They sang praises to God without the accompaniment of mechanical instruments of music. They gave of their means upon the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, and on the singing, Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, Colossians 3, 16, two of the passages that show that authority and authority for nothing more. They taught, they preached Acts 20 and verse 7, and they prayed. Acts 242, they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Those were the avenues of worship, and it was a worship that was spiritual in nature as opposed to being materialistic. And how did they get to be part of the church to begin with? What do we see in the New Testament as the terms of entrance? Well, go back to Peter's sermon and Acts chapter 2, on that day of Pentecost, when the church came into existence there, the gospel was preached there for the first time, Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly, Peter says, beginning in verse 36 of Acts 2, that God has made this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That is, what shall we do to be saved? They believed at that point. Peter said, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the other conversion accounts, we see also confession (laughs) as a prerequisite to their salvation. And then baptism, of course, as the culminating act of their obedient faith. And in Acts 2.47, we see that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Being saved by doing what? Believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. And when the church was in existence, how was it organized? Some board of directors? Some hierarchy? Some central governing body somewhere in some city that governs the various groups? No, we see every congregation being autonomous. That is, every congregation being completely independent with elders overseeing the flock of God among them. Those elders also called pastors, the preacher not being called the pastor, but the elders, the pastors, the shepherds, the presbyters, the bishops, various terms that are used for the overseers of the individual flocks, with deacons working under them as special servants, and every member, including the preacher, working under the oversight of the elders. And every congregation was to strive to have elders. Acts 14:23. when they had appointed elders in every church, And prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord, in whom they had believed. The qualifications for elders are given in Titus uh, and Timothy, and the qualifications for deacons also there in 1 Timothy 3, along with the qualifications for the elders. Now, we ask this question, is there a church today that possesses these characteristics? Can we even find one that does? We've got to eliminate, we've got to eliminate those with a foundation other than Christ. We have to eliminate those with the wrong builder. We have to eliminate those that were built during the wrong time or in the wrong place. We have to eliminate those who teach more than one church being acceptable to God. We have to eliminate those whose names or titles are unscriptural, whose believers are called by unscriptural names. We have no source of authority but the Bible, so we have to eliminate those who have something else as their source of authority in addition to the Bible. We have to eliminate those who worship on the wrong day rather than the first day of the week, as Scripture tells us. We have to eliminate those who have the wrong manner of worship. We have to eliminate those who have the wrong terms of admission. Let me say... With as much kindness as I can certainly muster, but without compromise, there's not a single denomination, not a single denomination that can stand up under that test. Not a single one, tragically. And yet it is imperative that we identify the New Testament church. It is absolutely imperative. It is wrong to say we just cannot know whether the, whether the church exists. It's wrong to say we cannot know whether we can identify the New Testament church. We can't say that. We can know. And it is wrong to say it does not matter, as many, so many tragically, in the religious world are saying today. There's so many who are saying, so what? So what if there are all these identifying marks or characteristics? It doesn't matter. We cannot say that, because if I cannot identify the New Testament church, I cannot be saved, because the saved are in the church, Ephesians five twenty-three. The husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Listen to it. He's the savior of the body. Have we not already clearly shown that the body is the church? We have from Scripture. Christ is the Savior of the body. He's the Savior of the church. Therefore, I cannot be saved if I cannot identify the New Testament church. I cannot receive all spiritual blessings if I cannot identify the New Testament church. Because all spiritual blessings are in Christ, Ephesians 1. And verse 3, and to be in Christ is equivalent to being in his church. But even in that verse, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the heavenly places, the church, the spiritual body, in Christ. I cannot glorify God. I cannot glorify God if I cannot identify the New Testament church. And yet, what is my whole purpose for living if I know my purpose and if I, if I carry it out? It's to glorify God. I will tell you without equivocation, you cannot carry out your purpose for living without knowing the New Testament church and being able to identify it. Ephesians 3, verse 21. To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, World without end, amen. To him be glory in the church. I can't glorify God if I can't identify the New Testament church. I can't be married to Christ because the church is depicted in Scripture as the bride of Christ. I can't find the bride. I can't identify the bride. Therefore, I can't be married to the bridegroom. Second Corinthians 11, verse 2. Romans 7, 1 through 4, where Paul talks about being dead to the law, that you might be joined or married to another in the body of Christ, the church. God was is without a dwelling place, as it were, if I cannot identify the church of the New Testament. Because the church is described as God's temple, his dwelling place, as it were, the place where he makes his presence known and blesses his people. 1 Corinthians three, sixteen and 17. Paul writes, Do you not know that you, and the you there is plural, he's talking about the church at Corinth as a whole, that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. God has no dwelling place. He's without a temple if I cannot identify the church of the New Testament. If I can't identify the church of the New Testament, I cannot be in God's family because it is called the house of God, the family of God in 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul said, I write so that if I am delayed that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. I can't even be in God's family. I can't labor in his vineyard. Matthew 20 and verse 1, that beautiful parable, is about the church. And listen to this. If I can't identify the church of the New Testament, then I cannot be reconciled to God. Nor can anyone be reconciled to God. And we cannot be one in him without him. Ephesians 2. Verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross. The one body is the church, isn't it? I can't be reconciled to God, nor can you. We can't be one in Christ and reconciled to God without identifying that one body. All ten of these things that we've just mentioned are essential. All ten involve membership in the church. I can be sure of my salvation. I can know that I know him, John says, if I keep his commandments. Therefore, I can be sure about the church. And if I'm not sure about the church, I cannot be sure about salvation. There is a church. There is a church spoken of in this book. It is identified and the church of Christ, that is belonging to Christ, does exist today, it fits the description, it meets the identifying characteristics. And if we say that we cannot know that, we are saying God failed to make His plans clear, and no spiritual truth can be known because no other is any clearer than the identity of the church for which Christ shed His blood to purchase it and to bring it into existence. And because all of this is true, I am obligated to be a part of that church. I am obligated to be a faithful member of that body, loving my brethren, leading others into the church, the kingdom, loving the church, upholding the church, never dividing it unnecessarily over matters that are of no doctrinal significance, never doing anything to bring shame and reproach upon the blood-bought institution for which Christ shed his precious blood. Lord willing, we'll present another lesson tonight concerning the church as we spend this day exalting the bride of Christ, the church of our Lord. Are you a part of that kingdom today? And do you understand and appreciate where you are if you are? And are you bringing glory to God and to Christ in that body the church. If not, we plead with you to change that today by coming home to your first love if you are a wayward child who's brought reproach upon the church we have just talked about from Scripture. But if you've never been a part of her, added to her by the Lord himself through your obedience to the gospel, we plead with you to do that this very moment. Believing with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and being buried with him in baptism he who believes and is baptized will be saved but that baptism has to be preceded by a belief john 8:24 by repentance luke 13:3 by a sweet confession of your faith matthew 10:32 and then you're ready to be immersed in water where not the water but the blood is applied from heaven itself to cleanse you from every sin that the lord might add you to his body the church as we stand to sing will you come